Welcome to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast that takes you freewheeling down the great internet rabbit hole of trivia. Each week we pick a starting point and then who knows where all the twists, turns and tangents will take us. But we'll be sure to unearth a treasure trove of frivolous facts that will be as fascinating as they are, well, useless. When One Thing Leads to Another is produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. Our theme music is by Justin Mitchell. This is episode 18. Craftwork. Now, the other weekend, we went up to that London, didn't we? We did. To go to Field Day, yes. which is a dance music event in Victoria Park, mm-hmm. in my old hunting ground of Hackney, mm. East London. And it is where we saw Craftwork, mm. who were... Brilliant. Amazing. Un- unbelievable, weren't they? Loved them. 3D show. 3D Craftwork. What more do you want? They were absolutely fantastic. Yeah. And so today's episode starts with some facts about... Craftwork. Mm-hmm. They were formed in 1970 by Ralph Hutter, who mm. is still in the group, and he yes, was there over was. on the left there, I think, wasn't he? Yeah, he sang the model. That's him. And Florian Schneider, yes, who sadly, sadly passed away 2020. Mm. Um, and they came from Dusseldorf, mm. surrounded by industrial buildings and factories they were, and so they called the group Craftwork, mm-hmm. um, whose closest translation in English is Power Station. Mm. So now you know. I wonder, did Power Station, as in Robert Palmer and the Duran Boys, were they aware of that? It's a good question because I decided to look it up thinking that they may have taken that for their very reason, but it's yeah. not. They oh. apparently recorded their album in a studio called The Power Station. Okay, fair enough. So, so that's how they got their name. And Craftwork's first foray into music was experimental, but did use orthodox instruments such as a flute, violin, mm. guitar and drums. Right. Um, but they were processed through an array of electronic devices. Okay. And then co-founder Florian Schneider acquired a synthesizer, which is the kind of sound by which we know them yeah. really now. Now, I didn't know this about them. Apparently, so I'm reading here at least, they were hugely influenced by the artists Gilbert and George. Oh. Yeah, apparently there was an exhibition in a gallery in Ralph and Florian's hometown of Dusseldorf. And you know how Gilbert and George dress the same each day and they, yes. they follow the same routine, so their sort of entire life is a kind of performance art? Well, we know only too well, don't we? Well, we do, yeah, because um, when I lived in Dalston there, um, if I looked out of my little window at eight o'clock, we'd see Gilbert and George every night mm. going into yeah. the uh, local uh, Turkish restaurant. Mangal. Mangal 2, which mm. is where they went every evening. Every uh, single evening, without and, fail. That's right, and apparently ordered the same thing. Yeah. But uh, So Kraftwerk were influenced by Gilbert and George? Yeah, exactly. They liked the way that Gilbert and George incorporated sort of art into their everyday yeah. existence. And so Ralph and Florian adopted a similar approach. Right. Now, as we all know, Kraftwerk went on to essentially invent electronic music and their influence cannot be overstated Mm. Uh, i think most people argue that i mean we would we have depeche mode 
you mm. know, Gary Newman, Human League, Visage, mm. Ultravox, etc., 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 without uh, craft work? Oh, I suspect not. And a whole heap of dance music as well. Exactly, I was coming we, on to that. We saw the Chemical Brothers after Kraftwerk and you could hear their influence even in the Chemical Brothers. It's true, yeah. Well, that all stems from when Africa Bambata sampled Kraftwerk for his tune Planet Rock. Mm. And so they became hugely influential in the hip-hop scene mm, and as a result yeah. they're, they're also at the forefront of modern electronic dance music mm. as we know today as, as you've just said yeah and you know their famous tune autobahn i do barn 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 on the autobahn farm 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 on the autobahn well that translates to um we drive 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 on the autobahn um, and this has led to a theory that this was intended as a nod to the Beach Boys. Well, it definitely sounds like it, doesn't it? We'll have fun, fun, fun till Daddy takes the tea bed away. Um, that theory has actually since been denied by Kraftwerk member Wolfgang Fleur. But it sounds so like it. Um, but Ralph Hutter has acknowledged the influence of the Beach Boys on their music. So who Good. knows? Thank you, Ralph. And referring back to Kraftwerk's enormous influence on music, their songs have been sampled a lot, yeah. um, as you can imagine, um, by anyone and everyone, including, and I would say unsurprisingly, already mentioned the Chemical Brothers, mm. uh, New Order, LCD, Sound System, yeah. Aphex Twin. But more surprisingly, mm. try this, Miley Cyrus. What? Yeah, and Coldplay which surprised me. Wow. And apparently Chris Martin of Coldplay recalled in 2007 that he sent a letter through the lawyers of the respective parties to request the use of a sample from Kraftwerk's tune Computer Love mm. and several weeks later received an envelope containing a handwritten reply that simply said, yes. Oh, <laughs> that's brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're pretty famously difficult to get hold of because in their studio called the Kling Klang Studio, the only method of communication apparently was a fax machine. Right. Um, because they, they didn't have the ringer on the phone. Right. Um, although people have claimed that they would pick up the phone at one o'clock on the nail in the afternoon and answer the phone regardless, and that would be the only time they answered the phone. Oh, right. So if you if you rang exactly one o'clock or yeah. just before one o'clock, yeah. they might pick up the phone. Right, okay. So they're, they're, they're notoriously impossible to get hold of. Talking of samples... Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the doctor's the other day. No. Um, who do you think is the most sampled artist in history? Oh, that's a good question. Well, I would have thought Kraftwerk are pretty near the top. Yeah. Um, I'm going to guess, I th you know, I think, it, uh, is it James Brown? Yes, it is James Brown. It is James Brown. Yeah, some fast facts about the godfather of soul for you. Go on then. His parents named him Joseph James, but the names were written the wrong way round on his birth certificate, so he became James Brown. Oh, OK. And although he sold over 50 million records during his lifetime, wow. he never got a number one hit on the Billboard Hot 100 in America. Well, you're kidding. Yeah, but holds the record for the most songs in the Billboard Hot 100 that never got to number one. Oh, wow. How, how many do you know? 96 in total. 96? Yeah. And no number ones. He died on Christmas Day in 2006 and was laid to rest in a 24-carat gold coffin. Yeah, that sounds pretty James Brown blingy. Mm. And going back to the fact that Kraftwerk were influenced in their approach to work by Gilbert and George, I thought oh, I'd yeah. have a little look 
into Gilbert and George. Yes, please. Did you know that their big breakthrough came in 1969 when right. they created an art performance called The Singing Sculpture? Right. Where they painted their faces with bronze paint, stood on a table and sang underneath the arches. <laughs> I mean, that sounds like... That. So all these street performers in Covent Garden, are, uh, they can say they're inspired by uh, Gilbert and George then. They were invited to perform it in galleries and museums all around the world, and the performance would last anywhere between six minutes and eight hours. Eight hours? Yeah. That's, that's, that's suffering for your art. Yeah. And in an article in The Independent in 2009, Jim Waugh, a.k.a. Vic Reeves, oh, yeah, Vic has Reeves. said that his Vic Reeves' big night out was inspired by the singing statues as he ah. wanted to create performance art which evolved into a stage show performed on Thursday nights at Goldsmiths Tavern, New Cross. Yeah. And apparently just four weeks later he got his TV debut on Channel 4's The Tube in a feature called Square Celebrities, <laughs> which I love, a pastiche of celebrity squares of course, where he asked questions to cardboard cutouts of celebrities while suspended high up on a wire. <laughs> Classic Vic Reeves. Yeah. Um, did you know that Jim Moir created his alter ego Vic Reeves by combining the names of his two favourite singers, Vic Damone and Jim Reeves? Oh, he's a fan of Jim Reeves. Yeah, yeah. okay. And this really surprised me about Vic Reeves. Did you know he also appears, albeit briefly, in the video for Shaking Stevens, What Do You Want to Make Those Eyes at Me For? You're kidding. Yeah, apparently he was hired for the shoot and paid £10 for his appearance. And I would heartily recommend anyone to watch that on YouTube. It will cheer you up no end, I can guarantee. <laughs> now, since the subject of Shaken Stevens has come up, yeah. and I was a big fan. You I, were. I was. I had, I had his first three singles on seven-inch uh, vinyl. Uh, I used to play them on the old dance set in the corner of the old bedroom there. How nice. Yeah, 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 great days. And so I thought I'd carry out some research on old Shaky. Mm. His real name? Yeah, is it Mike, Michael Barrett? Oh, very that, good, yeah. yeah. Michael Barrett, he was born in a suburb of Cardiff in South Wales. Mm. He was the youngest of 11 kids. Oh, wow, Catholics were they? <laughs> Sounds quite Catholic, doesn't it? But uh, who knows? Yeah. Um, and he was in bands when he was a youngster. And apparently he played at YCL events. YCL stands for Young Communist League. Oh. Yeah, the youth wing for the British Communist Party. Oh. I think he's, I think he's quite keen, old shaky, to distance himself from the Communist Party now. Right. I, I, he has no allegiances, at least. Um, and in the 1970s, Shaky fronted a band called Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets. And an early break for the band presented itself when they were given a support slot mm. for the Rolling Stones. What? Yeah, in December 1969. Wow. Shaking Stevens and the Sunsets supported, supported the, Rolling the Rolling Stones, Stones in 69. How about that? And the <laughs> Sunsets continue to perform to this day and still tour annually in the UK, I'm reading here, Europe and even Australia. And they've been fronted in recent years by Shaky's nephew, Levi Barrett. <laughs> that is beautiful. But yeah, old Shaky, he was the UK's biggest selling singles artist of the 1980s. Wow, for the whole decade? For the whole decade. Yeah, I mean, I know he was huge in the early 80s, but gosh, wow. Yeah, we all, I mean, who didn't love Shaky? Exactly, Shaky, the undisputed heavyweight champion of 80s pop. Well, he was the Welsh Elvis. He certainly was, and I'm glad you've mentioned that, because I didn't realise this, that's where he sort of got his break. He was actually in Elvis, the musical, 
in the West End in 1977. Was he? He certainly was. Oh, was he playing Elvis? Yeah, he played Elvis. Elvis was played by three or four different performers. Right, throughout his life, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. representing um, a part of his life. And Mm. old Shaky got probably the best part of uh, Elvis's life. He was middle Elvis. Right, yeah. That's the sweet spot. He hit the sweet spot. So he got... Prior to Fat Elvis, yeah, and post not really very well known Elvis. Exactly, <laughs> and I thought this was an interesting aside. The young Elvis mm. in the same show in 1977 was performed by a bloke called Tim Whitnell. Does that ring any bells to you? Whitnell. Whitnell. No. No, um, that's fair enough. But he went on to narrate the Massive Kids TV show Teletubbies. Oh. <laughs> And since I've mentioned the Teletubbies, I went on a fact-finding mission down the rabbit hole and found out some interesting things about the Teletubbies. <laughs> okay. Now, did you know that the owner of the land where the exterior shots of the Teletubbies' home was shot, mm. it was it was shot in a, uh, on a farm in Warwickshire. Oh. Well, the owner, Rosemary Harding, got so fed up with trespasses right. uh, that she flooded the site where oh. the Teletubby um, land sat. Okay. Uh, she complained of, quote, people jumping fences and crossing cattle fields we're glad to see the back of it oh dear that's a bit miserable a little bit on the old miserable side but it's weird to think that teletubbies had essentially groupies that would get onto the site yeah it was it was quite a big hit with students and things wasn't it and uh, the adults quite liked it for reasons best known to them yeah and also, maybe it was in Warwickshire, maybe there's not much else to do in Warwickshire. How know. dare you? Shakespeare's County. OK, I'm going to move us back um, to Shaky from the Teletubbies, if you don't mind. Go ahead. I, um, yeah, there's no such thing as too much Shaky, is there? Yeah, so um, just with regards to the fact that Shaky appeared in the 1977 West End production of, the, of Elvis, the musical. Indeed. Um, you know who else was in the cast? Other than the future narrator of the Teletubbies. Uh, no. Tracy Ullman. Tracy Ullman? Yeah, Tracy Ullman. Well, I'll be damned. Yeah. And do you remember that she covered Kirsty McColl's They Don't Know About Us? They, they don't, don't know about... Oh, dear. You know the bit where she sings, Baby, baby. I can't get up no. there. <laughs> Ullman said um, when she was on the BBC's Desert Island Discs oh, that yeah. she couldn't hit that high note successfully. I'm not surprised. So Kirsty's original vocal is used on the track. Oh, brilliant. Isn't that amazing? I never knew that. Baby! Tracy Ullman is one of the very few British comedians to successfully break America. Tis true. She starred in her own network television comedy series, The Tracy Ullman Show, from 1987 until 1990, which also, of course, featured the first appearances of The Simpsons. Oh, yes. Yeah. yeah. Talking of The Simpsons... Oh, I. Here are some quick fun facts for you. Hit me. Paul McCartney supposedly agreed to appear in The Simpsons on the proviso that Lisa Simpson remain a vegetarian for the rest of the series in which he appeared. Good one, Paul. Yeah, he didn't really need to worry because I think she's she's a vegetarian in every single series. It wasn't just for that series. Yeah, I'd she's, yeah, she's it would a vegetarian. totally fit. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And you'll remember we discovered in a previous episode of When One Thing Leads to Another that the man who voiced Mickey Mouse called Wayne Anthony Alwyn married the woman yes. who voiced Minnie Mouse. Oh, yes. Russie Taylor. Well, in France, <laughs> yeah. 
The man who voices Homer married the woman who voices Marge. <laughs> Ooh la la. Oh, that is brilliant. Isn't that nice? Uh, did you know that the Simpsons creator, Matt, I think it's Groening, it's, I never know how to pronounce oh, it. It's sort of spelled Groening, but Groening, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. I think Matt Groening. Uh -huh. Named the characters after his own family names. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. his father was Homer, his mother Margaret, and he had two sisters called Lisa and Margaret too. Right, okay. Bart is an anagram of brat which is oh. who represents him, supposedly. OK, I didn't know that. OK, that's good. And did you know there's a novel written in 1939 called The Day of the Locust, featuring a character called Homer Simpson, and Groening has oh. said that that's where he got the surname Simpson from. And there's another interesting connection, because Matt Groening is married to an Argentine artist by the name of Agustina Picasso, Right. Useful surname, no relation apparently. Right. And they have a son called Nathaniel, who is supposedly named after Nathaniel West, who was the author of The Day of the Locust. Oh, that all ties up nicely. Yeah, and in 1975, a film adaptation was made of the novel featuring Donald Sutherland playing the part of Homer Simpson. Oh, OK, wow. Mm. Actually, talking of Donald Sutherland, if I may jump in there. Yeah. Um, did you know that he was once declared dead? Oh. Yeah, albeit for just a few seconds. Yeah. Right. Yeah, apparently in 1970, he was shooting the film Kelly's Heroes oh, yeah. in Yugoslavia, as it was called back then. Yeah. And uh, Donald Sutherland, he developed spinal meningitis. Oh. And he was taken to the hospital. But because the drugs he needed were not available... He fell into a coma and he was declared dead until he came round a few seconds later. Flipping out. Yeah, he later recalled the, his experience of death saying, quote, I saw a blue tunnel and I started to go down it and then I saw the white light and I dug my feet in, he said. I didn't want to go, but it was incredibly tempting. You just go, shit, man, why not? <sighs> wow. But fortunately, he didn't go, dug his heels in and he's still alive to this day. Returning to the subject of The Simpsons. The Simpsons. You know who wrote the main theme? Uh, Danny Elfman. Yeah, I know the name, yeah. I found some great facts about him as well. Go on then. As well as writing The Simpsons theme, Elfman has scored a ton of films, including a lot for Tim Burton, which is, it's, that's probably quite well known. Right. Batman, Edward Scissorhands, The Nightmare Before Christmas, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory to name but a few. Okay. But more interestingly, certainly for me, as a teenager, yeah. Elfman dated his classmate Kim Gordon, who would later oh, become one of the founding members Sonic Youth. of Sonic Youth. You're kidding. Well, that is interesting. Yeah. And back to The Simpsons, you know that Dan Castellanata provides the voice of Homer. Yes. Castellanata has said that he based Homer's famous on Jimmy Finlayson's in the Laurel and Hardy films. Oh, you remember the mustachioed yeah. character who crops up in several of their films? Oh, he was absolutely brilliant. Yeah. yeah. I found out that the expression in those old Laurel and Hardy films was used as a substitute for the word damn, as the word damn would have been considered a cuss word and not allowed oh, okay. in those days. Yeah. And do you know what you call it when you use a substitute word for a swear word or blasphemous word in order to make it allowable or acceptable, like flipping hell instead of f***ing hell? Oh, there's actually a name for it? Yeah. It's called a minced oath. <laughs> a minced 
oath. Yeah, a minced oath. Thus the word bloody, which itself may be a shortening of the expression by our lady, referring to the oh. referring to the Virgin Mary, which would have been considered blasphemous, can become blooming or ruddy oh. or, or blinking. Interesting. Yeah, isn't it? So a commonly used minced oath in Australia is struth. Struth, mate. Which, of course, is a substitute for the blasphemous God's truth. Ah, okay, yeah. Another interesting example of a minced oath is the use of a blank <laughs> to replace profanities in print. It goes back at least to 1854, when clergyman and author Cuthbert Bede wrote, I wouldn't give a blank for such a blank blank. I'm blank if he doesn't look as if he'd swallowed a blank codfish. <laughs> Right, okay. By the 1880s, it had given rise to the derived forms blanked and blankety, which combined gave the name of the long running British TV quiz show Blankety Blank. Right, talking of blankety blank, mm. uh, you remember what the consolation prize was? Blankety blank checkbook and pen. Of course, quite famously. Well, I was reading that there was only a limited number of those made, and they are fetching pretty decent money on eBay. Oh, I bet they are. Yeah, yeah. I found one that was sold in April 2017. Mm. Nice learner. 400 quid. Oh, I thought you were going to say tens of thousands of pounds. <laughs> <laughs> so 400 quid was a little bit of a letdown. I'm not going to lie. But returning to minced oaths. Yeah if I may, sometimes words borrowed from other languages um, become minced oaths. And I really liked the example of poppycock. Poppycock. Which comes from the Dutch papikak, which means soft dung. Soft dung. So poppycock is Dutch for shit. Sheet. Sheet. Thank you for listening to When One Thing Leads to Another, a podcast produced and presented by us, Helen and Bill Rich. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you could rate us and review us wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to subscribe, that way you'll never miss an episode. A massive thanks to Justin Mitchell for letting us use his music as our theme song. It's a track called Homo Erectus, taken from his brilliant album called The Garden of Earthly Delights, which is available to buy from bandcamp.com. Thanks also to Acast for hosting us. Remember to join us next week for another episode of When One Thing Leads to Another. Please note, all facts have been found on the internet and therefore we cannot vouch for their veracity. 